Chapter 9, Part 1 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, July 2007. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 9, Part 1. The Athenian Empire under the Guidance of Pericles. Section 1. The Completion of the Athenian Democracy. To the Greeks of Simone's day it might have seemed that the Athenian constitution, as it had been fixed by Cleisthenes and further reformed after the Battle of Marathon, was as democratic as it well could be. But the supreme people was to become, in still full measure, lord in its own house, under the guidance of Thethylides, whose career was suddenly cut short, and of Pericles, son of Xanthippus, who was to be the most prominent figure in Greece for thirty years. The mother of Pericles belonged to the family, and bore the name of the daughter of the Sasonian tyrant, the Agorista whose wooing had been so famous. She was the niece of Cleanthenes the lawgiver, and sister of Megacles, who had been ostracized as a friend of the Pisistratids. The young statesman had a military training, but he came under the influence of two distinguished teachers, to whom he owed much. One was a countryman of his own, Damon of Oa, one of the most intellectual Athenians of his day, and renowned as a master of the theory of music. The other was an outlander and a philosopher, Anaxagoras of Clazomeni, whose mechanical theory of the material universe, once for all set in motion by an act of unchangeable mind, freed Pericles from the superstition of the multitude whom it was his task to guide. To these masters the statesman partially owned his intellectual aloofness, but he did not owe them either his political ideas or the gift of lucid and persuasive speech which was essential to his success. He was indeed a striking contrast to Simone, the loose and genial boon companion. He seldom walked abroad, he was strict in the economy of his household, he avoided convivial parties, and jealously maintained the dignity of his reserve. His portrait was chiseled by Chrysalis. It is something to have the round pedestal on which the original image was set, but we also possess a copy of the portrait. It shows us not the lofty Olympian statesman, but the passionless, contemplative face of the friend of Anaxagoras. The most conservative institution in Athens was the Council of Areopagus for it was filled up with the archons who were taken from the two richest classes in the state. This institution was incompatible with the development of democracy, and it was inevitable that it should be ended or mended. Ephialites had prepared the way for an attack by accusing individual Areopagites of corruption and fraudulent practices, and then, taking advantage of Simone's absence in Messenia, he introduced a series of laws which deprived the ancient council of all its powers that had any political significance. Its right to punish the public ministers and officers if they violated the laws, its duties of supervising the administration and seeing that the laws were obeyed, were transferred away and transferred to the people. The censorial powers which enabled it to inquire into the lives of private citizens were abolished. Nothing was left to the venerable body but its jurisdiction in homicidal cases the care of the sacred olive trees of Athena, and a voice in the supervision of the property of the Eleusian deities. 
The functions which it lost passed to the Council of Five Hundred, the Assembly, and the Popular Law Courts. All impeachments for crimes which threatened the public weal were henceforward brought before the Council or the Assembly, and henceforward the people tried in their own courts officials who had failed to give a satisfactory account of their administration. We have a notable monument of the excitement which this radical change caused at Athens, and a drama of Aeschylus which was performed a few years later. The Eumenides describes the trial of Orestes on the hill of Ares for the murder of his mother and the institution of the court of the Areopagus. The significance of the drama has been often misunderstood. It is no protest after the event. It is no cry to undo what had been done. On the contrary, Aeschylus, so far as his poetical motive permits him to suggest a criticism of recent events, approves of the reform. The Areopagus, he suggests, was instituted as a court, not as a council. Its true purpose is to pass judgment on homicides, like Orestes. The Eumenides was calculated to tranquilize those who, awed by the dark and solemn associations which hovered over the hill of Ares, regarded the attack upon it as an impiety. The dismantling of the Areopagus was an indirect blow to the dignity of the Archons, who, by virtue of their office, became Areopagites. About the same time, another step was taken on the path of democracy by making the archonship a paid office. Once this was done, there was no longer any reason for confining the post to the two richer classes. The third class, the Zucatae, were presently made eligible, and it cannot have been long before the Thetes, whose distinction from the third class seems to have been yearly becoming fainter, were admitted also. The two engines of the democratic development were Lot and Pay. Lot had been long ago introduced, but it had not been introduced in its purest form. The archons and other lesser officers and the members of the council were taken by Lot from a select number of candidates, but these candidates were chosen by deliberate election. This mixed system was now abolished, the preliminary election was done away with, and the Council of Five Hundred, as well as the archons, were appointed by lot from all the eligible citizens. By this means, every citizen had an equal chance of holding political office and taking a part in the conduct of public affairs. It is clear that this system could not work unless the offices were paid, for the poorest citizens would have been unable to give up their time to the service of the state. Accordingly, pay was introduced, not only for the archonship, but for the members of the council. The payment of state offices was the leading feature of the democratic reforms of Pericles. It was a feature which naturally won in popularity with the masses, especially when it was adopted in the case of the popular courts of justice. At the time of the attack on the Areopagus, Pericles carried a measure that the judges should receive a remuneration of an obol a day. Though the measure had the immediate political object of gaining popular support for the attack on the Areopagus, it was a measure which was ultimately inevitable. The amount of judicial business was growing so enormously that it would have been impossible to find a sufficient number of judges ready to attend day after day in the courts without any compensation. But the easily earned pay attracted the poor and idle, who found it pleasant to sit in court listening to curious cases, their sense of self-importance tickled by the flattering respect of the pleaders. Every citizen who wished could place his name on a list from which the list of judges was selected by lot, so many from each tribe, and the courts were empaneled from this list. 
It was now to the interest of every Athenian that there should be as few citizens as possible to participate in the new privileges and profits of citizenship. Accordingly, about ten years later, the roles of the burghers were stringently revised, and a law was passed that the name of no child should be admitted whose father and mother were not Athenian citizens legitimately wedded. It was a law which would have excluded Themistocles and Cleanthenes, the lawgiver, whose mothers were foreigners. It was a matter of course that in cases of political character, the judges of the Helicia should be swayed by their own political opinions and by the eloquence of the pleaders working upon their emotions. It was inevitable that the legal aspect of such cases should be often lost to sight and the facts often misjudged. It was an essential part of the democratic intention that the sovereign people should make its anger felt, and if its anger were sometimes, like a king's anger, unfair, that could not be helped. But it was far more serious that in private cases the ends of justice were liable to be defeated, not through intention, but through ignorance. We can have no better evidence as to the working of the popular courts than the speeches by which the pleaders hoped to influence the decisions of the judges. Litigants at Athens had to plead their own cases. There were no such institution as court advocates. But a man might learn off a speech which had been composed for him by another, and recite it in court. Hence there arose a class of professional speechwriters, and many of their speeches had been preserved. From these models of judicial eloquence we learn how pleaders expected to gain sentences in their favor. To make a large use of arguments which are perfectly irrelevant to the case, a plaintiff, for example, will try to demonstrate at great length that he has rendered services to the state and that his opponent has performed none. There was thus no question of simply administering the law. The judges heard each party interpreting the law in its own sense, but they had themselves no knowledge of the law and therefore, however impartial they sought to be, their decision was unduly influenced by the dexterity of an eloquent pleader and affected by considerations which had nothing to do with the matter at issue, and there was no appeal from their judgment. A feature of the American democracy not to be lost sight of is that public burdens were laid upon the rich burghers, which did not fall upon the poor. These were no regular taxes on income or capital, but burdens which were highly characteristic of ancient society, and which might fall to a man's lot only once or twice in his life. We have already seen how chirocs were taken from the richer classes to equip and man tyremes, in which they were themselves obliged to sail and for which they were entirely responsible. It was a duty which entailed not only an outlay of money, but a considerable sacrifice of time and trouble. There were other burdens also. For example, when the city sent solemn deputation some religious errand, whether to the yearly feast of Apollo at Los, to one of the great Panhellenic festivals, or to the Oracle of Delphi, a wealthy citizen was chosen to eke out at his cost the money applied for the purpose to the public treasury and to conduct a deputation and equip it with magnificence worthy of the occasion. But none of the liturgies, as these public buildings were called, was more important or more characteristic of Athenian life than that of providing the choruses for the festivals of Dionysus. Every year, each tribe named one of its wealthy tribesmen to be a Sheregos, and its duty were to furnish and array a chorus and provide a skilled trainer to teach it the dances and songs of the drama which it was to perform. Rivalry spurred the Choragai to ungrudging outlay. He whose chorus was victorious in the tragic or the comic competition was crowned and received the bronze tripod, 
which he used to set up, inscribed with his own name and that of his tribe, upon a pillar or sometimes upon a miniature round temple. On the east side of the Acropolis, leading to the theater, a long street of these Shurigat Mamnians recorded the public spirit of the citizens, and this street of tripods showed, perhaps more impressively than any other evidence, how much significance the state attached to the theater and the worship of Dionysus. Never was piety more fully approved as wisdom. The state's endowment of religion turned out to be an endowment of brilliant genius, and the rich men who were called upon to spend their time and money in furnishing the dancers did service to the great masters of tragedy and comedy, and thereby served the whole world. Section 2 War of Athens with the Peloponnesians the banishment of Simone was a signal for a complete change in the foreign policy of Athens. She abandoned the alliance with the Lacedaemonians and formed a new alliance with their enemies, Argos and Thessaly. The new friendship of the Athenian and Argive people is reflected in the trilogy which Aeschylus composed about this time on the murder of Agamemnon and the vengeance of Orestes. The dramatist plays pointedly upon the alliance, and perhaps it is not undesigned compliment to the new ally that he makes Agamemnon lord of Argos, and not of the newly destroyed Mycenae. So far, indeed, as the main interests of Athens were concerned, she was not brought into direct collision with Sparta. But these interests forced her into deadly rivalry with two of Sparta's allies. The naval empire of Athens and the growth of her sea power were rapidly extending her trade and opening new visions of commercial ambition in all quarters of the Greek world. She was competing with, and it seemed likely she would outstrip, the two great cities of traffic, Corinth and Aegina. With Aegina there had already been a struggle, and now that Athens had grown in power and wealth, another struggle was inevitable. The competition of Athenian merchants with Corinth in the west was active, and it was about this time that an Athenian general took Napoticus from the Ozolian Locrians and secured a naval station which gave Athens a considerable control over the mouth of the Corinthian Gulf. This was a blow which struck home. Athens had now the means of intercepting and harassing the Corinthian Argosites which sailed forth with merchandise for the far west. War was a question of months, and the occasion soon came. The Megarians, on account of a frontier dispute with Corinth, deserted the Peloponnesian League and placed themselves under Athenian protection. Nothing could be more welcome to Athens than the adhesion of Megara. Holding Megara, she had a strong frontier against the Peloponnesus, commanding the Isthmus from Pagai on the Corinthian to Nisei and the Saronic Bay. Without any delay, she set about the building of a double line of wall from the hill of Megara down to the haven of Nicaea and she garrisoned these, quote, long walls, end quote, with her own troops. Thus the eastern coast road was under her control, and Attica had a strong bulwark against invasion by land. The occupation of Megara was a new offense to Corinth, and it was an offense to the mistress of the Peloponnesian League. War soon broke out, but at first Sparta took no active part. On the events of the war we were ill-instructed. We find an Athenian squadron make a descent on Halius, and gaining an advantage over some Corinthian and Epidurian troops. Then the little island of Secrophalia, which lies between Aegina and the Argive shore, becomes the scene of a naval combat with Peloponnesian fleet, and the Athenians prevail. 
At this point, the Agenitans entered the struggle. They saw that if Corinth sustained a severe defeat, their own fate was sealed. Athens would become absolute mistress in the Saronic Sea. A great naval battle was fought near Aegina. The allies of both Aegina and Athens were engaged, and the Athenians, having taken seventy ships, landed on the island and blockaded the town. Thereupon the Peloponnesians sent a force of hoplites to help the Aeginetans, while the Corinthians, advancing over the heights of Gerania, descended into the Megarid, expecting that the Athenians would find it impossible to protect Megara and blockade Aegina at the same time. But they reckoned without a true knowledge of the Athenian spirit. The citizens, who were below and above the regular military age, were formed into an extraordinary army and marched to the Megarid under the Strategos Myronides. A battle was fought, both sides claimed victory, but when the Corinthians withdrew, the Athenians raised a trophy. Urged by the taunts of their fellow citizens, the Corinthian soldiers returned in twelve days and began to set up a counter-trophy, but as they were at work, the Athenians rushed forth from Megara and inflicted a severe defeat. This warfare, round the shores and in the waters of the Saronic Bay, is the prelude to more warfare in other parts of Greece but it is a prelude which has a unity of its own. Athens is opposed indeed to the Peloponnesian alliance, but the war is, so far, mainly conducted by a concert of three states whose interests lie in the neighborhood of the Saronic Bay, Corinth, Apodorus, and Aegina. These states have indeed the Peloponnesian League behind them and are helped out by the, quote, Peloponnesian ships and, quote, Peloponnesian hoplites, but at the same time, the war has not yet assumed a fully Peloponnesian character. The year of these successes was a year of intense excitement and strain for Athens. It might fairly be described as an annus mirabilis in her history. The victories of Secrophalia and Aegina were won with only a portion of her fleet. For in the very hour when she was about to be brought face to face with the armed opposition of rival Greek powers against the growth of her empire and the expansion of her trade, she had embarked in an enterprise beyond the limits of the Greek world. It was an expedition to Egypt, one of the most daring ventures she ever undertook. A fleet of 200 Athenian and Confederate galleys was operating against Persian and Cyprian seas when it was invited to cross over to Egypt. The call came from Anaros, a Libyan potentate, who had stirred up the lands of the lower Nile to revolt against their Persian masters. The murder of Xerxes had been followed by troubles at the Persian court, and it was some time before Artaxerxes was safely seated on his throne. The rebellion of Egypt was one of the consequences of the situation. The invitation of Anaros was most alluring. It meant that, if Athens delivered Egypt from Persian rule, she would secure the chief control of the foreign trade with the Nile Valley and be able to establish a naval station on the coast. By one stroke she would far outstrip all the rival merchant cities of Hellas. The nameless generals of the Aegean fleet accepted the call of the Libyan prince. As in the days of remote antiquity, the, quote, peoples of the north, end quote, were now to help the Libyans in an attempt to overthrow the lords of Egypt. Of those remote episodes the Greeks knew nothing, but they might remember how Carian and Ionian adventures had once placed the Egyptian king upon the throne. In another way, an attack on Egypt was a step in a new path. Hitherto the Confederate ships had sailed in waters which were wholly or partly Greek, 
and had confined their purpose to the deliverance of Greek cities or cities which, like the Carian and Lycian, were in close touch with Greek civilization. The shores of Cyprus, where Greek and Phoenician were side by side, invited above other shores a squadron of Greek deliverers. But when the squadron crossed over to Egypt, it entered a new sphere and undertook a new kind of work. The Egyptian expedition was an attempt to carry the struggle with Persia into another stage, a stage at which Greece was the aggressor and the invader. This attempt was not destined to prosper, more than a century was still to elapse before the invasion of Xerxes would be avenged. But it is well to remember that the Athenians, in moving on Egypt, anticipated Alexander the Great, and that success was not impossible if Simon had been their general. The Athenians sailed up the Nile to find Inaros triumphant, having gained a great victory in Delta over a Persian army which had been sent to quell him. Sailing up, they won possession of the city of Memphis, except the citadel, the, quote, White Castle, in which the Persian garrison held out. After this achievement, we lose sight of the war in Egypt for more than two years, and beyond the protracted brocade of the White Castle, we have no record how the Athenians' forces were employed. But it was a fatal coincidence that the power of Athens should have been divided at this moment. With her full forces, she might have inflicted a crushing blow on the Peloponnesians. With her full forces, she might have prospered in Egypt. It was a triumph for the political party which had driven Simone into banishment, that when half the Athenian fleet was on the blanks of the Nile, the hostilities of Corinth and Aegina were in their friends should have been so bravely repelled. Nothing impresses one more with the energy of Athens at this crisis than the stone which records the names of the citizens belonging to one of the tribes who fell in this memorable year. Quote, of the Erechtheid tribe, these are they who died in the war, in Cyprus, in Egypt, in Phoenice, at Halelis, in Aegina, at Megara, in the same year. And the names follow. The siege of Aegina was continued, and, within two years after the battle, the Aegeans capitulated and agreed to surrender their fleet and pay tribute to Athens. Few successes can have been more welcome or profitable to the Athenians than this. The island which offended their eyes and attracted their desires when they looked forth from their hills across the waters of their bay was at length powerless in their hands. They had lamed one of their most formidable commercial rivals. They had overthrown one of the most influential cities of Dorian Greece. In the Confederacy, Aegina took her rank with Thassos as richest of the subject states. For these two island cities, the burden of yearly tribute was thirty talents, incomparably larger than the sum paid by any of the other cities whose tribute we know. In the meantime, events in another part of Greece had let the Lacedaemonians themselves take part in the war, and had transported to the main interest of the struggle from the Saronic Gulf to Boeotia. The errand of the Lacedaemonians was an errand of piety, to succor their mother people the Dorians of the north, one whose three little towns had been taken by the Phocians. To force the aggressors to restore the place was an easy task for a force which consisted of 1,500 Lacedaemonian hoplites and 10,000 troops of allies. The real work of the expedition lay in Boeotia. It was clearly the policy of Sparta to raise up here a powerful state to hold Athens in check and this could only be effected by strengthening Thebes and making her mistress of the Boeotian Federation. Accordingly, Sparta now set up power of Thebes again, revising the League and forcing the Boeotian cities to join it.
when the army had done its work in Boethia, its return to the Peloponnesus was beset by difficulties. To march through the Megarid was dangerous, for the Athenians held the passes and had redoubled their precautions. And it was not safe to cross the Corinthian Gulf, the way by which they probably had come, for Athenian vessels were now on the watch to intercept them. In this embarrassment they seemed to have resolved to march straight upon Athens, where the people were now engaged in the building of the long walls from the city to the harbor. This course was probably suggested by an Athenian party of oligarchs, who were always abiding an opportunity to overthrow the democracy. The Peloponnesian army advanced to Tanagra, near the Attic frontier, but before they crossed the borders the Athenians went forth to meet them, 14,000 strong, including 1,000 Argives and some Thessalian cavalry. The banished statesman, Simone, now came to the Athenian camp, pitched on Boeotian soil, and sought leave to fight for his country, against Sparta. The request was hastily referred to the Council of 500 at Athens. It was not granted, and all that Simon could do was exhort his partisans to fight valiantly. This act of Simone prepared the way for his recall. In the battle which followed, his friends fought so stubbornly that none of them survived. There was great slaughter on both sides, but the Thessalian horsemen deserted during the combat, and the Lacedaemonians gained the victory. But the battle saved Athens, and the victory only enabled the victors to return by the isthmus and cut down the fruit trees of the Megarid. Athens now desired to make a truce with Sparta, in order to gain time. No man was more fitted to compass than the exile Simon, whose recent conduct had shown that he was the foe of the foes of Athens, even if these foes were Spartans. The people, at the instance of Pericles, passed a decree recalling him. But when Simon had negotiated the truce, he withdrew to a distance from Athens, with a tact which we might hardly have expected. The Lacedaemonians celebrated their victory by a golden shield which they set upon the gavel in the new temple of Zeus, in the Altus of Olympia, as a gift from the spoils of Tanagra. But the victory did not even secure Boeotia. Two months after the battle, the Athenians made an expedition into Boeotia under the command of Myrinades. A decisive battle was fought at Onophyta, and the Athenians became masters of the whole land except Thebes. The Boeotian cities were not enrolled in the maritime confederacy of Delos, but the dependence on Athens was expressed in the obligation of furnishing contingents to her armies. At the same time, the Phocians entered into the alliance of Athens, and the Opuntian Locrians were constrained to acknowledge her supremacy. Such were the consequences of Onephida and Tanagra. Athens could now quietly complete the building of her long walls. These brilliant successes were crowned, as we have seen, by the capture of Aegina, and probably about the same time the acquisition of Chosen gave the Athenians an important post on the Argyllic shore. But in the far south their arms were not so prosperous. Since the capture of Memphis, no success seems to have been gained, and the White Castle still held out. After an ineffectual attempt to induce Sparta to cause a diversion by invading Attica, King Artaxerxes sent a large army to Egypt under Megabysus, who was supported by a Phoenician fleet. Having won a battle, he drove the Greeks out of Memphis and shut them up in Propitius, an island formed by a canal which intersected the Canopic and Sebenitic channels of the Nile. Here he blockaded them for eighteen months. 
At last he drained the canal and turned aside the water so that the Greek ships were left high and dry, and almost the whole island was reconnected with the banks. Thus the Persians were able to march across the island. The Greeks, having burned their ships, returned to Byblos, where they capitulated to Megabizus and were allowed to depart. A tedious march brought them to friendly Cyrene, where they found means of returning to their homes. Aniros, who kindled the revolt, was crucified, though his life had been spared by the terms of the capitulation. Soon afterwards, a relief squadron of fifthly Tyremes arrived from Athens. It was attacked by the powerful Phoenician fleet in the Mendesian mouth of the Nile, and only a few ships escaped. The Persian authority was restored throughout the land. The day for Greek control of Egypt had not yet come. But though the Athenian lost ships and treasures along this daring, ill-fated enterprise, their empire was now at the height of its power. They were even able to make the disaster in Egypt a pretext for converting the Delian Confederacy into an undisguised Athenian empire. The triumphant Persian fleet might sail into the Aegean Sea. Delos was not a safe treasury. The funds of the League must be removed to the Athenian Acropolis. The Empire of Athens now included a continental as well as a maritime dominion. The two countries which marched on her frontiers, Boethia and Megara, had become her subjects. Beyond Boethia, her dominion extended over Phocis and Locris to the pass of Thermophili. In Argos, her influence was predominant. Aegina had been added to her Aegean Empire, the ships of Aegina to her navy. Through the subjection of Megara, the conquest of Aegina, and the capture of Choison, the Saronic Bay had almost been converted into an Attic lake. The great commercial city of the Isthmus was the chief and most dangerous enemy of Athens, and the next object of the policy of Pericles was to convert the Corinthian Gulf into an Attic lake also, and so Heminth Corinth on both of her seas. The possession of the Megarid and Boethia, especially the station at Nalpaticus, gave Athens control of the northern shores of the Gulf from within the gate up to the Isthmus. But the southern seaboard was still entirely Peloponnesian, and outside the gate, on the Acarnanian coast, there were posts which ought to be secured. The general Tomides made a beginning by capturing the Corinthian colony, Chalcis, opposite Patre. Then Pericles, having conducted an expedition to continue the work of the Ptolemides, having failed to reduce Sicyon, he laid siege to Onide, an important and strong-walled mart on the Canadian coast, but he was unable to take it. Though no military success was gained, the expedition created a sensation, and it seems to have led to the adhesion of the Achaean cities to the Athenian alliance. It is certain, at least, that shortly afterwards, Achaea was an Athenian dependency, and for a few years, Athenian vessels could sail with the tents of dominion in the Corinthian as well as in the Saronic Bay. End of chapter 9, part 1.